Good morning. I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Wednesday, January 4th. The struggle to address extremism among military vets. More on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. The State Department of Water Resources conducted their first snow survey of the season in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Sean de Guzman manages the survey. He said the snowpack is better than this time last year, but it doesn't eliminate drought concerns. We must continue to remain vigilant and continue to conserve water. No single storm event will end the drought. We'll need consecutive storms month after month after month of above average rain, snow, and runoff to help really refill our reservoirs. The upcoming storms are predicted to be colder than the recent ones and should increase the snowpack levels. A new report reveals that in 2021, law enforcement officers in the state were more than twice as likely to use force against people they perceived as black during vehicle and pedestrian stops compared to people believed to be white. Those perceived as black and Hispanic or Latino were also more likely to be stopped in the first place. The report was compiled by California's Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board to better understand bias in policing. It analyzed vehicle and pedestrian stops from 58 agencies, including the San Diego County Sheriff and San Diego Police Departments. San Diego County had its second-highest average price per gallon of gas to begin a year on Sunday. That's despite a recent run of decreases for over a month and a half. The first highest average price to start a year was last year when it was nearly $4.63. And yesterday, the average price in the county was $4.54. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. Friday, January 6th will mark two years since the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. More than 10% of the people charged with crimes in the attack are military veterans. But policymakers are still struggling to address violent extremism among some members of the veteran community. Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project. In the congressional session that ended in December, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs looked at extremism and white supremacy among veterans. At times, the hearings themselves highlighted how difficult the conversation remains. Some GOP members lashed out at the premise, including Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana. Mr. Chairman, I think this uh, hearing is offensive, and the fact that you're going to save our Veterans from becoming political terrorists is offensive to every veteran in America. But the number of veterans linked to extremism has been rising, though it's still a tiny percentage of the veteran community. 118 people with military backgrounds face charges related to the January 6th insurrection. 
California Democrat Mark DeCano was committee chair. It is a small number. We need to be able to raise this issue without being uh, subject to the claim that we're trying to paint all veterans or characterize all veterans as extremists. The committee called on the VA to work more closely with the Department of Defense to curb extremism among veterans. But Takano concedes that will be a challenge. It's a very delicate place that VA has to be in, in terms of they're the government, they're the federal government. If it it looks like they're kind of intrude into the realm of a veteran's beliefs, that's not going to work. Competing definitions make it more difficult to take action. Max Rigamonde is a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland. He is one of the authors of a paper in the November issue of the Journal of Applied Communications Research, which looks at how the military and veterans groups talk about extremism. Not every extremist is a terrorist. Harboring extremist ideologies does not make an individual a terrorist. They found the White House, Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense each have their own definitions of extremism, which are different from the FBI. After the insurrection, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin ordered a stand-down among all troops to talk about extremism. It didn't really accomplish any of the goals that it set because they were just defined in very abstract terms. There was really no measure of success, right? That's also an issue with a lot of government um, terrorism prevention policies. There are no measures of success. Nick Mararak is another one of the paper's authors. Asian-American and gay, he graduated from the Naval Academy in 2007 and says extremism is nothing new in the military. He remembers an incident on one of his first ships. Someone pulled the knife on me on board and they were like sharpening their knife in front of me as if to intimidate me. Mararak is now a linguist who studies the language used by the military and veterans community around extremism. Though reports from the Department of Defense say the problem is rare... I'm not really sure that squares with like my experience in the military. And I would argue that uh, perhaps some of these folks that are coming into the military already subscribe to these ideological views. It's not like they come in and like the military fosters this culture. Some veterans don't fall prey to extremism until after they leave the service. Groups like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters, who were involved in the insurrection, actively recruit veterans. Advocates say the military could do more to help troops resist those appeals. Akila Templeton runs Veterans Village of San Diego, which assists veterans experiencing homelessness and problems with substance abuse. That transition, right, so coming out of the military and entering back into society, it's really hard. So when a person is unable to, I think, make a smooth transition, they're more susceptible to these types of things. She says vets are pulled into violent extremism for the same reason they fall into substance abuse. Job loss, family issues, isolation, military trauma, combined with a loss of purpose. And Templeton says groups like hers are not really getting guidance from the VA on how to tackle the problem. In San Diego, I'm Steve Walsh. That story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. San Diego hospitals are preparing for a potential surge in COVID and flu admissions following the holidays. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says local doctors aren't expecting this year to be as bad as previous years. 
if you look at it in trend wise, I think that's good. Um, and we're very hopeful, but we're very guarded still because we're not quite over in terms of the Christmas or the New Year. Kaiser San Diego's Assistant Chief of Staff, Dr. William Sang, is hopeful that this winter won't be like previous ones. The number of reported COVID cases isn't comparable to this time last year, and many San Diegans have protection from vaccines and prior infections. I think we're in a much better shape. Again, I want to be guarded about it, um, but I want to see what happens within the next month and if everything's okay. I think we've dodged the big one. Updated COVID and flu numbers will be released by the county later this week. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. A class action lawsuit was filed against Southwest Airlines on behalf of two San Diego County residents whose tickets were canceled during the airline's scheduling system meltdown over the holidays. The suit alleges that Southwest either knew or should have known that it would not be able to provide services as promised. Consumer travel advocate and former airline executive Kurt Ebenhock says this was not a weather issue, but a failure of the airline for not upgrading their systems. There were warning signs of this developing over the past couple of years. Uh, the warning signs were well known. Their own pilots were warning the company. The flight attendants were warning the company. Alex Dichter is the attorney for the plaintiffs. He says his clients are looking for systemic change. My clients are very adamant of having a bolstered passenger bill of rights. So when an airline does have staffing issues, does fail to book travel in a prudent business-like manner, they do take care of the passengers and consumers in a proper way. In a statement, Southwest Airlines says it is trying to do right for its customers by offering reimbursement for expenses, refunds, and 25,000 frequent flyer miles to some customers. A jury has awarded a former San Diego County Deputy Public Defender $2.6 million in his wrongful termination lawsuit against the county. KPBS reporter Amitha Sharma has more on yesterday's verdict. The jury found San Diego County was responsible for past and future wage losses totaling $640,000 for ex-public defender Zach Davina. The panel also awarded him $2 million for emotional distress. The jury concluded the county public defender's office fired Davina, who was gay, because of his gender expression and for complaining about what he believed were racist comments made by a public defender supervisor toward a black Latino colleague. Davina's lawyer Chris Ludmer said he and his client were grateful the jury saw, quote, the truth in this case. And held the county to account for its multiple violations of the employment laws, for their failure to prevent violations of the employment laws, and for their obvious failed attempts to cover all of this up with false investigation reports. The county did not respond to a request for comment on the verdict. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. Coming up, while India's RRR was the most watched non-English film on Netflix, We'll have that story and more next, just after the break.
Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. India consistently produces about twice as many films as the U.S., American audiences are starting to embrace those movies thanks to streaming services such as Netflix and Prime. The film RRR was in the top 10 most-watched Netflix movies back in May of last year. It's now nominated for two Golden Globe Awards and shortlisted for an Oscar. It's one of KPBS Cinema Junkie host Beth Accomando's top 10 films of 2022 in the fall she discussed the success of RRR with KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen and Yazdi Pithavala, co-host of the podcast Movie Wallace. So RRR is India's most expensive movie to date, and it's one of its highest grossing. Beth, tell us what this film is about. All right, it's hard to condense it, but RRR is inspired by a pair of historical figures, but it delivers more fantasy than facts as it gives us this bromance between two men who seem to be fighting on opposite sides. One is a villager rebelling against his British colonizers, while the other is working for them. So it's a three-hour saga, which is typical for Indian films, and it features ridiculously gorgeous stars, crazy action set pieces, an evil empire, melodrama to swoon over, and of course, musical numbers like this one that are absolutely irresistible. And this one is kind of a dance-off. Not salsa, not flamenco, my brother. Do you know? And I actually watched this video yesterday. It is very, very catchy. I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> so, uh, Yazdi, although this is a musical and it's from India, it is not considered Bollywood. So why is that? So Indian cinema is frequently associated with Bollywood films, which are made in Hindi, the national language of the country. Bollywood refers to films made in studios in Bombay, which is now Mumbai. However, from the very beginning, India has had a rich history of local cinema made in other parts of the country. Most recently, films made in South India have been gaining national attention because some of those films are just better films, period. Films made in the regional South Indian language of Telugu are particularly on the rise and getting a lot of attention. And those films are called Tollywood films. And RRR is a great example of that. So Tollywood versus Bollywood, good to know. Beth, why do you think this film, RRR, has had such a great crossover success? 
Well, the filmmaker, S.S. Rajamuli, knows how to work the audience. He knows how to make everything feel epic in ways that play off of the kind of Bollywood traditions. And he mixes that in with kind of Indian mythology and delivers everything with kind of an affectionate wink to the audience, kind of saying that he knows this is over the top. He knows this is exaggerated, but he knows it's going to suck us in and make us like swoon and beg for more. So he's dialing it up, not just to 11, but to like a thousand. I mean, there's a torture scene where the guy breaks out into song and then in the next scene is fine. So it's just relentlessly and joyously over the top. And it's really easy to get completely sucked in by it. And in the West, sometimes we call that camp. (laughs) Yazdi, can you explain or what do you make of this film's success? And do you think it represents the best of Indian cinema today? So there are many reasons for the film's success. Its two male leads are sons of ruling acting dynasties in South India. So having them both co-lead a large budget blockbuster epic such as this almost guarantees maximal attendance in local theaters. But what's interesting are the other reasons for the remarkably unexpected huge international following for this film. There are several reasons. This is maximalist cinema at its most maximal. There is no nuance here. There are no shades of gray. The bad guys are evil and extreme, and the good guys are downright gods. And there is something very elemental and primal about how this story is constructed. And there is an open-armed embrace of sentimentality that is uncommon in cinema these days. So I think both of these things speaks to the universal uptake for the film. And so in retrospect, this is not so much of a surprise. And add to that incredible action scenes and a soundtrack that's working really hard over time, all the time, through all of the three-hour running time. And you have, you know, something that is pretty, pretty remarkable. That was Yazdi Pinhavala and Beth Hakamando speaking with Andrew Bowen last fall. RRR is being shown this week at San Diego's Digital Gym Cinema as part of their For Your Consideration film series. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Laura McCaffrey produced today's podcast. Thanks, Laura. And thank you for listening. Have a great day.